Hello and welcome to Clergy in Collar Getting Coffees. Today I am joined by my special guest, the Reverend Dr. John Welsh, who is the senior pastor of the Sixth Mount Zion Missionary Baptist Church. He's CEO of Flourishing Communities, the Director of Strategic Partnerships and Program Development for Pittsburgh Pastoral Institute. Prior to that, John spent almost 14 years as the Vice President of Student Services, Community Engagement, and Dean of Students at Pittsburgh Theological Seminary. And beyond that, he has done strategic, strategic business planning, conducted seminars, training church leaders, physicians, nurses, and other healthcare professionals in ethics and burnout and moral distress and long-term care and implicit bias and institutional racism. You, There's not a hat you don't wear, John. And uh, he is currently on the nonprofit board and chair of the board of directors of the, I'm gonna say that wrong. How do you say that? Gam Gamaliel, Gamaliel <laughs> Network. Uh, you, you are a native of Pittsburgh and beyond uh, the other things I've mentioned, you hold a bachelor's of science in chemical engineering and economics and a master's of divinity and PhD in healthcare. So welcome. That, <laughs> that is a lot. A lot of very good, rich stuff there, which we could probably speak for hours on any of those topics. And um, we know each other because of our work on the General Assembly Permanent Judicial Commission. That's how we uh, we have met um, for the work that we do for the PCUSA. And one of the things that I have learned in the time that we have known each other is that you are a lover of jazz. I am. I love, I love music, I love jazz. Yes. Yeah, and that you and your wife take these jazz cruises. Yes. Now, when did, when did that start and how badly did COVID mess up the, the, the trips? Uh, well, COVID definitely did did postpone now we've not uh done these cruises long we've just finished our second which probably had not had it not been for COVID, may have been our would have been our fourth perhaps but our first cruise uh, i believe was in 2019 yeah it was in 2019 and that was uh this was the dave cause the dave cause cruise and uh, the 2019 cruise was to the Baltic. So we we uh, started in Copenhagen, Denmark, and then traveled to Sweden and Estonia, Russia, um, and uh, uh, forget now the fourth country where we went, uh, Finland. <clears throat> and it was nice. I mean, at first, you know, I thought it was going to be cold. You know, we went in, in in May, but it was the temperature was beautiful. The sights were beautiful. The music was outstanding. I didn't want to get off the boat. I, I was going to say you get this like amazing soundtrack to the beautiful scenery. Is that like? Yeah, it's it's yeah, it's it's the best vacation I've ever had. And uh, um, so, you know, there's a there's another cruise jazz cruise that um, and it's not the only, there are, there are several, but the other famous, or one art of artist that I love is Brian Culbertson. So Brian Culbertson has a cruise that does the Mediterranean. <clears throat> and uh, we've not been on that, but I think we're, we're going to stick with uh, Dave Cause. We love the artists that he has, and he doesn't just have jazz artists. He has R&B artists. I'll have a comic on there. And so it's just a lot of fun and uh, just a good time. Now, how does like, I'm always interested to know how people found out that information to begin with. Did Were you just like, what is jazz and my love of traveling? Or like, what did what was that Google search like? Or was it your wife who was doing it? Or like a friend or who, like, how does, how does one, because I, until you had mentioned it, I didn't know that such specifically themed cruises existed. And I have since learned you can basically cruise on about any theme you could possibly think of. Yeah, we well, a friend of ours did the cruise and told us about it. And uh, we got we we waitlisted. And that's how we got on the 2018. We were <clears throat> someone someone had canceled. And so we were taken off the waitlist. 
And the, the wild thing was the day that we got on the boat, the next year's cruise was sold out already. Whoa. And so uh, it's, it's like an automatic wait list, you know, so you have an opportunity as so for those who were already booked and not waitlisted, they knew about the upcoming cruise before we did. And so they were able to sign up ahead of time. And so now that we've been on two, we're already already aware of upcoming or, or we're, in fact, we're already booked for next year's cruise, which will be uh, traveling to Greece and Turkey and uh, Israel and uh, um, Egypt. Wow. So, so, yeah, like I said, I don't want to get off the boat. You know, I don't really, I mean, it's great to see these places, but the music and just the fellowship was so awesome. It's like, I don't want it to stop. It's like, just yeah. keep, let's go around in circles if we have to. <laughs> <laughs> so they could, they could literally, I mean, really, they don't have to move at all. You could stay docked the whole time with everything and be perfectly just at ease. Oh, I, I would, as long as they keep, I mean, so. I pastor Baptist church. Yeah. But, you know, we got rid of the whole, uh, you know, no drinking policy out of the. Okay, so you're not a dry church. <laughs> so I'm not a dry church. So as long as they have the bar open. Yeah. I'm good to go. And food to I eat. Would... <laughs> so I'm fine. So I, I like to tell people that the, the church I serve is dry, but the people who go to it are, are not. Like, it's not. <laughs> So, like, we don't do it here because, like, you know, Presbyterian polity, if we serve wine at communion or whatever, then you have to serve whatever. You have yeah. to serve grape juice and all that stuff. It's just easier to serve the grape juice. Um, and so it's about ease. Um, and then the other bit is always about liability. So, but, but they, so it's, it's a dry church, but it's not a dry um, congregation by, by any stretch of the imaginations. Um, I think we'll find too many dry congregations. <laughs> no, so. I don't. I don't think we do either. Uh, but the the thing that I'm curious about, and I know you don't, you and you even mentioned you don't only just love jazz, and you have at least two of your children are also musicians. Yeah, three, three of my four are musicians. Amazing. Um, and so jazz isn't the only language, but would you like? Would you say that? music is definitely one of those places where you can hear hear and feel god's presence but maybe even god's voice sounds like a an instrument of some kind or a piece of music to you is that has that ever been is that ever been an experience i guess yeah you know i i think the divine the divine and music is inextricably linked you know and so you know the, we find that i think the first reference to actually its effect was, you know, David playing for Saul. And, uh, um, but, you know, science, there's scientific evidence that music actually um, travels into a subconscious human state that nothing else does. And so, um, so it has the ability to speak to us in ways that uh, just human language does not. So, um, so that's why I say, you know, you, we cannot, I don't think we can separate that from the divine. Um, and the same token, you know, it can also be an instrument of evil. So I, I, um, anything that can penetrate the subconscious and we can't take for granted, you know, evil forces and the impact that it has, you know, on, on humanity. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, to answer your question, I think it is ways and, and I firmly believe it is ways. In fact, it has been sort of my entree into ministry, uh, music was. And so, um, so I don't limit myself to jazz, of course, gospel, um, but even classical music, uh, which is where I got my start anyway, was in where, classical music. Was in classical music. Yeah. Now, playing or listening or both? Both. More playing okay. and then evolved to listening um, because the playing of the classical kind of faded away and the, the gospel kind of took over. Okay. But, and uh, what did you play? Piano. Okay. Piano and the classical, and then moved to wind instruments uh, in in high school, and uh, and then went back to the piano and keyboard and organ in, in post college years. Okay, and do you still play? Only when I have to. <laughs> <laughs> now, is there a piece of like um, 
So there's sometimes like with the the church uh, where I sometimes I choose music that my congregation can't stand. Uh, and now sometimes I don't like it either. Like I just like to try it out, see what happens. And so I'm a fan of, of doing that. I think it's good to keep us all on our toes because I, I think, you know, if we just sing what we're familiar with or play what we're familiar with, then we don't learn about this new favorite that we might discover or, or a piece that we are like, I'm never going to touch that piece of music again. That can be done by a choir people who rehearsed it, but that is not for a general congregational sing. But I often say like the, the, the rhythm or the speed at which my soul hums sometimes is not, it's not a dirge. My soul does not hum at a dirge like pace. Um, it has, there's a little, there's a lot more, uh, rhythm and, uh, and stuff to that. So like how, what, where do you feel like those, um, what are some of those pieces of music that have most penetrated your, your soul? If you were just to highlight just a handful or. Oh man. Yeah. So. Cause I know it's a big question for a music level. Well, you know, I, I, I love some of the soundtracks of star Wars movies. Yes. Uh, I mean, it's that, that deep rich. Uh, and I, and I, I love, even though in my Baptist church and even in my Presbyterian church, uh, I did not have access to the, um, uh, or regular access to the pipe organ. Yeah. Richness and the sound of a, of a pipe organ. I mean, those sort of things really, you know, dig deep mm -hmm. uh, to my soul. So, you know, as opposed to, um, you know, the typical gospel music and even some of the jazz, I think for me, they are, they are more, um, um, kind of on the surface of my spirit, you know, but the deep penetrations for me are more with the orchestrations, the orchestra music. And, um, and, uh, um, as I mentioned, like the, you know, the, the, the pipe organ within a worship setting. So I, I, I mean, I, it just, anything that makes my body shudder, I just, yeah. <laughs> it's my spirit, you know, so. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I, I understand that. I, um, it's, it's really fascinating. I mean, I usually ask people, like, I'm always curious to know, um, what's like a, an instrument or a sound and you reference the pipe organ might be one of these for you, but like that, that you really feel like when you hear that being played well, that it really like hits a place that you can't even articulate. Like for me, that's the harmonica. I love, I don't play the harmonica, but, um, uh, my husband does, but, um, that for me is an instrument that for whatever reason, when I hear it in the background of a song or someone's just playing it, um, I, I, I really just, uh, it just hits me in a spot that I, I, that other instruments don't. I might like a lot, I like a lot of the tonal sounds of many instruments, but the harmonica touches a place that I can't even put my finger on. So is, um, is the pipe organ that for you or is it another instrument? I mean, it might be several. Yeah, it, it's it's several. I mean, the pipe organ definitely in the worship setting. Um, I love uh, so if, if if there's an ensemble of baritone saxophones, uh, or there's um, even the, the trombone and French horn, more so more so the trombones. So the lower register instruments, I yeah. really like. Um, one well, of the you you have a lower register instrument. They're <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, um you know singing singing baritone and bass over the years so i guess kind of maybe one one reason why i have the affinity to those things um but those those instruments um and uh um even so as far as the um percussion instruments you know the timpani um uh, you know i like um as opposed to a bass drum, you know, bass drum and yeah. marching don't really do nothing for me, but you know. It's that, it's that the, the timpani has another, It well, it's more of a berry sound than a bass sound anyway, but I think. Yeah, but. yeah. Um, and so, so yeah, there's, there's different, there's different instruments. Um, the uh, one that I don't really care for is the, uh, the oboe. It kind of sounds like a whining child. So 
that, that is, it's the piccolo for me oh uh, yeah. yeah it gets like it gets too high yeah. that i'm like i can't it's like i shouldn't be able to hear that i feel like yeah that's piccolo. that's kind of in the same category for me i you know the flute i can do with the piccolo not so much uh and and the oboe nah. So, but you know, it's in since I played clarinet, you know, that was kind of like I was near the piccolo section. Oh, it's like I mean, a cousin, right? Section, yeah. So, um, but yeah, but I, I like deep, rich sounds, and so, um, uh, so yeah, those instruments. I can't think of. There's another one that uh, I really, the uh, oh, the the probably a, a tuba section. Mm. But I, but I love horns though. I I love. Yeah. I love horns. So, you know, um, uh, groups like Earth, Wind and Fire or um, um, uh, what was the other one? I I'm blanking on their names because it'll it'll probably come to me. But I love horn sections. I love I, I love good bands. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, of course, with jazz, you know, you got a You got a nice a nice band. Yeah, for sure. I, I mean, you, you'd hope so. Uh, now, one of like I, we've but we've talked a little bit about like I I love stand up comedy as well. But one of the um, one of the people who I really appreciate is Dave Chappelle, and I like the way he 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 thinks there's a lot of similarity between jazz and and good stand up comedy. <laughs> um about like the timing and sort of like the stories that it tells or whatever and i recently just saw a clip of him introducing um you know he talked where he talked about that i don't remember what it was for uh right now but he was talking about his love of jazz and like jazz music musicians and the similarity between stand-up comics so then he he was introducing his favorite stand-up comedians, but he said it like, let me introduce you to some of my favorite jazz musicians, right? And, and um, you know, it was people like Richard Pryor and Red Fox and, and uh, Eddie Murphy and some of these other comedians. Uh, I think it was for the African-American Museum dedications. So it was a while ago, it's like an old clip. I don't know how I stumbled upon it, but it, I mean, you mentioned like even on these cruises that there's a, there's R&B and there's jazz and there are stand-up comedians. Do you do you see a connection in the storytelling aspect of like, and and then does that does that tie into the power of the biblical storytelling? I I would agree with him. I didn't hear uh, that clip from him, but I would agree that there is a similarity um, based on the timing aspect and the. The, the ability to, you know, as a comic, you know, you want to, and as a preacher, you, you want to tell a story, you want to carry your audience, you know, you don't want them dropping off at any given point of your delivery. So, you know, you want okay. them kind of hanging on, waiting to hear what you want to say. And so you have that in, a, in addition to the improvisation element, um, which you have in jazz and you have in, in, in com uh, uh, comedy. Although, of course, for comedians, you know, they typically rehearse. They know what they're going to say because, you know, but there was that one show that had um, uh, Wayne, um, Wayne Brady and these other comics. It was like, oh, and, yeah. Right. So, you know, these were all improvisational acts. They were all comics, you know. And so, you know, you have that um, you, you have those similar elements, I think, between jazz and 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 comedy. And although there may be very little improvisation i wouldn't say little improvisation in preaching you know you have those extemporaneous preachers who kind of have a sense of what they're going to say and those who say you know they're really depending on the spirit they might say they're you know using improv but i i don't know um i'm not one like that i need a manuscript yep me to, too to tell my story um and every now and then you know i may you know uh insert something that i had not inserted but something that came to me in the moment so yeah, I I see similarities there, and um, and it's yeah, and some because sometimes you have to based on if you're like preaching from the pulpit. At least I find if I'm like something isn't hitting, or when something is right, then you if it is hitting, you want to draw, you want to you want to bring that energy out more. And if it's not, you're gonna you're like, oh, 
I must have missed a note that was important. I forgot. Let me, what is it? <laughs> and you go back and you have to try to pick it up so that you, you, you get people um, connected again. I, I, I do think that's something that happens uh, in the pulpit. And I, like you, um, only do that. I, can, I only feel comfortable doing that when I have a manuscript as an, as a, as an outline or as a, as a guide. And um, some of that surprises some of my preacher friends that I'm not more of one of these expert, you know, these uh, off-the-cuff sort of pastors, but it's not, um, it, it makes me too nervous. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, you know, there's, there's been occasions when I've, preach without notes, you know, I mean, I've, I've pre-thought, of course, but I've, I've had an outline in my head, but um, that's not my comfort zone. And um, uh, so, yeah, give me, give me my paper. <laughs> so, and to pivot entirely away from what we've been talking about, but with, you know, we, in the intro, there were so many, um, places uh in your life so many areas um that that are mentioned there that that don't seem some of them don't appear to be related on the surface but uh, but i i think that they are I, I mean i think there's a reason uh they sort of all pair together but how would you say that your training in ministry and the work you've done in healthcare and and even with engineering and and economics like how how has that um all sort of worked together to make you into a strong um pastoral leader like how how does that work in and and through covid did did knowing so much about healthcare help you or hurt you <laughs> like hmm. Did you know too much or uh, with the ethics or, or did it help you to have conversations and present ideas that maybe other people who've never been in those environments would not have thought of? That's a, that's a great question. Um, so let me, let me first respond by saying that um, when you look at the things that's highlighted in my, in my bio, there's, there, there appears to be no logical connection. And, you know, to the point where I, I was going to say, if you found one, let me know, because <laughs> I don't see it, <laughs> but, um, but clearly every one of those elements have contributed to me being who I am, um, both as a consultant, uh, a professor and a pastor. Um, and so I would say what, what, where they've all come together is that they've given me a, um, an appreciation and an understanding of systems. I was going to say the the connection I see is efficacy and and um, systems. That's what I see in between all those things. Like that's what I see. I I, I look at most things from a from a systematic or systemic perspective, and uh, um, some of that comes from my engineering background, and some of it comes from um, the um, my healthcare. Well, I applied that to my healthcare. It helped me to to see that system uh, a lot differently. And then from seminary, you know, seminary allowed me to kind of even look at the the theological systems that, that you know that gave rise to the theologies, the Western theologies that we have, you know, and that sort of has silenced the Eastern theologies, uh, Eastern religions, and um, thing religions from um, the global South. You know, they they've um, and so I, everything to me is based on a system for good, good or for bad. And, uh, um, and so now how do I then tell the story, you know, the biblical story, looking at biblical systems and the rise of systems from the, you know, from, uh, the ancient Near East perspective uh, timeline. And then how do I overlay that now with the present realities and how do those systems impact our lives? And, you know, so kind of interweaving those things. Um, and coming up with um, a, a a sermon that helps us to to dissect and to you know apply you know our faith our theologies you know to those things. Right. So that's kind of like where all of that kind of comes together for me. And 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 issues of like ethics and um, 
Well, and, and in the bio too, right? There's a there's a emphasis on ethics, and in some ways, I I would assume you'd have to deal with moralities and um, but how and then the institutional racism, like how our systems are designed and what intentions our systems were designed with. Like, does do you feel like it? having a background in engineering where everything is so precise helps you to better understand what building blocks you need to give people in order to make those connections to like, oh, no, this system was designed to benefit only this thing. This was the designed outcome. And we could restructure it, diverting it here, right? We can restructure it to um, make the system benefit, I would say, you know, a, a broader uh, group of, of people. Do, does that does that help you to do? Is that a way in which you even approach it? I don't even know if that's the way you approach it, because I've, I've never taken one of your lectures. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, you're giving me some ideas for some upcoming ones. But but yeah, it's so, you know, I consider myself an activist pastor, uh, mm -hmm. preacher. And so um, having spent, you know, the Gamaliel Network is, you know, organization that has 40, 44 different faith-based organizations in um, different cities across the country, 12 different states. And so we apply our faith, we use our faith to apply pressure, you know, on different situations or, you know, on people in power in order to create different outcomes. And so, of course, increased pressure also increase increased temperature, which means, you know, <laughs> Right. So some folks ain't going to like that, you know, because oh. it's kind of hot when you do that. So identifying pressure points that's going to affect and have a different outcome is 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 what I do within the organizing world and what I try to do I mean, in the faith-based organizing organizing world. And so my my engineering background was more process engineering and as uh and and so well, I mean a lot of even electrical engineering is is a process because it's about circuitries and things of that nature. So as I try to understand processes, you know, then yeah, I can better understand where certain areas within a process can be affected, you know, can be changed to have a different output. So you're always going to have an input. You're always going to have elements that affect the stream. This is also affect the output, you know. So yeah, and and what would you say are some of those places um, where the church would do better to? And I'm, I mean the broader church. I'm not talking about your church specific, but like where we could maybe do a better job at helping to or beginning to redesign a, a system that empowers more people um, versus perpetuating systems that disempower or disengage people. Yeah, uh, good question again. Um, so as far as the church, I mean, we understand that we would not exist had it not been for Christ. Mm -hmm. So have a better understanding of who he is and who he was and where it was, the culture in which he came um, and in what he did, um, what I think would be, would be helpful. And to know that even, you know, we can't separate Christ without you know the stories that sort of foretold him right. and so it's it's you know shame on us if we don't believe that God is a God of socialism mm. you know and so um and you know and this is not to completely you know nullify capitalism but uh but uh, but an imbalance where everything is heavily based on capitalism at the neglect of socialism is an imbalanced system and so um, when we look at, you know, what God put in place for the people of Israel, you know, in, a, in, the, Deuteron in the Deuteronomy codes and stuff, it was it was a socialist system. And so um, thus you have Jubilee and, you, you know, where debts are free. And so we can't forget those. So we can't just rely on the love of Christ and forget about the things that came before him that he was all part of. So our, having a better understanding of him and to, to, the totality of Christ, which does, which includes all of the Old Testament, I think is a one starting point for us. And then with that understanding, we can then um, get back to what you said earlier before the recording is that, you know, we have to make sure that those who have everything, those who have so much, 
don't believe that they received it on their own. You know, they got it based on our contribution to their wealth building, you know, and so it's time for them to find ways to give back and to share some of that, some of that wealth. And so, um, and I, what I find very interesting is, you know, right now I'm, I'm starting a, a Bible study on the 12 minor prophets that, you know, one of the things for which they, that Israel was heavily criticized for was the corruption of religion, the increase in immorality, uh, and the, um, the uh, increase in wealth at the expense of the, the the poor. And so the huge wealth gap, you know, all of those things, which we're seeing even today in our own country and globally, um, is that the church needs to pay attention to. Yeah, and it, and accepted it as like that's as though that's somehow the way the system's always been, where like even in 1970, that that's not the way the system was. I mean, there were still many unfair parts of it, but the, the gap in the wealth gap was not nearly... Right. the size that the gap wealth gap is now and how that affects people. I, um, I saw, um, and you reminded me of this. I saw uh, a little sticker recently that said, don't sit at the tables that Jesus flipped. <laughs> and I feel like there are times where that's what you're in some ways. That's sort of what you're talking about. It's like, once I get to a certain amount of comfort in my wealth, even if it's, nothing compared to like the wealth of others uh it's enough for me to get by and not feel like i'm struggling then i just want to like pull up my seat and start sitting down and it, and in some ways it's a, a question of jesus why are you to just is that what you're supposed to do or or and who's at that table now is it exclusive <laughs> um who's invited and who's not invited um if if you if you do that and uh, so that that raises some really interesting questions. So we we've never had a year of uh, I don't think a year of jubilees historically ever existed. So what would that look like uh, if if you were to declare right? This is the year of jubilee. I know biblically what it said, but what would that look like in terms of some of those systems then, both in and outside of the church? I think that I think one for starters is, you know, as I think about it would be the elimination of student loan debt. <laughs> you know, that would be a help. Yep. Uh, yep. And uh, uh, I mean, look at I mean, we knew this back in early 2000s that soon after the uh, 2008, after that 2008 economic crisis, it right. was it was predicted that the student loan debt was going to be the next crisis. And so we've had nine, 10, 11 years to address it. And we did, and we have it. So, um, you know, anything I think that kind of throttles, um, uh, or thwarts, you know, the ability for somebody to flourish. That's a great word, by the way. Thwarts. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That that, that, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But that thwarts your ability to flourish. Yeah. That though, that's a place to start. Um, it's it's interesting. I don't know if you have this. But sometimes I have a very well. I, uh, like I read. There are certain books that I read, that I, I'm grateful that I read them for the knowledge. But I actually didn't like reading them because they made me like morally feel, black. Like I don't know how to describe that. And um, one of them that you just reminded me of was. Um, and, and they turned it into a movie, and I, I've seen the movie, but I also read the book, was The Big Short. And it was about that housing. Did you did you see it or read it? I, I didn't read. I saw the movie. I didn't read the book. And I saw uh, another Netflix documentary that I actually shared in my business ethics class a few years ago uh, about how that all came about. Oh, I would be very, I probably, what is the name? Do you remember the name of that documentary? I can't, but I'll. I'll, I'll, okay. I'll send it to you. Okay. Because I, and the, cause the thing about it is that obviously in books, you can go into greater background and, 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 uh, with the people and the characters that you see in the movie, a movie just can't do that. If it's not a, a mini series, a mini series has a chance to do that. But like most of our movies don't, they've, there's stuff that's gotta be cut out or characters that get combined into one character in a movie that are not, um, that are multiple character, multiple people in a book. Um, but it was like one of these things that made me so 
Like I was like, ugh. It, it made me a little sick to think about even the shorting out is what gains certain people a mass amount of wealth while literally other people were declaring bankruptcy and people lost their homes and all these sort of things. And then to know that there were people that were um, throwing up flags or throwing things up and saying that like, you know, or calling to question to say, why aren't you doing that? And it makes me, why aren't we paying attention to this? And it makes me think like, as you're prepping for that Bible study about the minor prophets as part of the role, I mean, that's the, that's a huge role that minor prophets played in that was like alerting people to what was happening, what was coming, what, you know, how they, how maybe they could stop the thing from happening. Do you think we have any current day prophets that you would point to, to say some of the, these people or these systems or these groups are maybe doing this and, and it would be wise of us to pay, pay them a little more attention? Yeah. So, um, there are, when you say groups, uh, I would consider groups that have sort of taken on a prophetic role as, uh, like Greenpeace, um, and, uh, um, uh, some of the other organizations that are really, um, calling us to account, um, issues that 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 have widespread uh implications um now of course they're not doing it from a theological perspective but you think of the role of the prophet was basically to identify facts and tell the truth so which means that puts you and i both in those categories now unfortunately we have some folks who are sitting in our congregations and don't want to hear the truth um, I mean, we, sometimes, truthfully, I don't want to hear the truth. There are times and moments where it's a hard pill to swallow. I'm like, I changed my mind. I don't want the truth. I want you to lie to me. Well, you know, <laughs> and, and we think about Amos. I mean, Amos yeah. wasn't considered a prophet. He, did, he didn't define himself as one because you, you had your schools of prophets, so to speak. He's like, look, hey, I was doing minding my own business, picking sycamores <laughs> and, and herding sheep. And <laughs> the voice of God called me. So... Uh, you know, so yeah, he, like I, you know, I don't want to do this, but he says, but how can you not prophesy when God calls, right? And so, yeah. you know, yeah. so, uh, so as much as you and I may not like the truth, you know, we we have to at least put it out there. And, yeah. uh, but then again, unfortunately, I think we are in this season where it's not so much that there are some folks who don't want to hear the truth, but there's others who really now can't really discern what truth is because it has been so. Mm affected by i mean it's it's you know with social media and the fact that you can get information anywhere you don't know what truth really is and so that's i think is one of the challenges we have as a church is how do we take facts and really articulate them as truly facts you know that um unadulterated facts and then convey them you know within you know uh in a in a um a message identifying them as truth and so um and, and so i think it was giuliani who said you know what who raised the question you know what is truth and he was being interrogated a few years back and then you've got trump talking about fake news so then it, it raises the question well what news is truth and what news is not what news is fake and what news is not not so, right so I think that's one of our challenges now is, you know, how do we be, how are we, can we be the purveyors of, of real truth and it, and, and people accept it. And, and, and sometimes I feel like, you know, do we, do we ask enough questions? Like, do we think enough, um, has, has, has the, um, environment gotten so toxic that we can't even have discourse where we get to sort of, um, look at you know look at it you know shift th you know sort of dig through it to see what actually that kernel of truth might be because sometimes you get like just this little bit of truth and then then a whole bunch of twists and turns right but i feel like sometimes we don't spend time going okay those twists and tor turns were just like a ruse right it was a it was a cunning att attempt to trick me 
But there is a, 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 you know, there is this snippet of truth in what what is being said, and we could have maybe rich dialogue on on that. But I I feel like we spend a lot of time instead dialoguing on, um, you know, the the junk rather than the 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 essence of of the argument or whatever. I and that might I mean just be me personally. I don't know what your feelings are on that. I agree. I mean, I, our, our climate now is, you know, much like the wealth gap is worse than it's ever been. Our political climate is the worst. Uh, I, uh, I, I would venture to say it's probably the worst is, that it's ever been. There, there is no middle, you know, everything, everything is so polarized. And, uh, um, and the, the, the sad thing is how uh, politics and religion have become so toxic intertwined in a toxic manner yes you know? um and so you know which which then unfortunately puts us in a situation where people will heavily say you cannot you know there's a separation of church and state you cannot bring politics into the pulpit well that's the very place where politics is supposed to be but in a in a less toxic manner you know then again based on on truth and so um we're, you know, we're in a difficult, really difficult situation. Uh, the, oh, the name of the movie was Inside Job, by the way. Um, oh, okay. Um, and so. Oh, not to be confused with Inside Man, which is a great movie, but starring a completely different mate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, so. Um, which, you know, that documentary really gets into the heart of greed. Um, and risk taking. And, yeah, uh, and, and sometimes I, I mean, I get into debates um, with friends and people of of wondering, like, we talk about greed, but sometimes I feel like the amount of accumulated wealth people have is actually closer to gluttony than greed, and and yet gluttony seems to be only reserved for the excessiveness when it comes to like eating and not even that someone's excessively eating is that they visibly are like you can visibly see the excessiveness because there are some people who can obsessively do lots of things but you don't see it visibly on their their body necessarily and so you know for whatever reason they have a high metabolism or a good um plastic surgeon I don't know. Like, I don't have any idea, like, what people do. But um, I, I just don't feel like we we talk about the accumulation of and the excessiveness of accumulating more wealth than one can possibly use in their lifetime. We don't talk, I don't feel like media-wise it gets talked about as either greed or gluttony. It's only greed if you use it negatively. It's not greed if you're just keeping it for yourself I mean it's like no they earned that and you're like but how did they earn it and mm -hmm. why do we allow somebody to accumulate that much stuff when they're when, like why does the system allow that when there are so many people who are suffering that there are times where I'm like you know Elon can you just give me five million dollars I could change my whole community with five million dollars like I could build the exact housing cooperation and solve housing insecurity in in my town with that money and it's literally nothing for him it's like nothing and in my lifetime I will not earn five million dollars like you and me, you and me both. And while we're talking about greed, I mean, don't be fooled by this background. You know, this is not where I live. <laughs> it isn't, but it is where you you have had the privilege of studying, which I I appreciate. That yeah. there's a lot of great work that came out of time well spent in that in that place. Um, but but I but you know I think I I I'm I wonder like who like when we don't have these kind of critically if we don't have critical conversations about who controls the information that we receive, who mm -hmm. benefits from things staying the way they are, um, I, I think it gets, and, and I don't know that I see those as political so much as I see them as like uh, things, you know, thoughtful. <laughs> yes, like, um, 
And so I, I, I don't know how you've balanced that over the, over the years and how, um, how you proceed in the current climate that we're in. Yeah, I, um, I, I, I think it's, I think it's going to be severely difficult. I mean, it's, it's, uh, I think it was, I don't remember the gentleman's name, but you might recall uh, during the uh, political election season, I think of 2012 or 2016, maybe 2016, Facebook came under, uh, under attack. Yeah. And, um, Facebook was using <clears throat> a company doing its analytics called Cambridge Analytica. And its CEO, of course, you know, he was indicted over, you know, over a bunch of stuff. But one of the, one of his quotes was, you know, it does not have to be true. You just have to make people believe it. Oof. And so that's what, and so these algorithms and, and the proliferation of false information and all of that kind of stuff, you know, based on Facebook's algorithms on what, what it is, it seems to get your attention. I mean, this is what we're facing and um, uh, which is contributing to the hyper-partisanism that we have um, and the divisions in the church. You know, we have churches that are, that have, that are split, yeah. uh, politically split and, uh, and pastors who are afraid to you know, they have to tiptoe around the issues because they don't want to upset one half because they upset one half, they'll make the other half happy or vice versa. And then right. puts their, their job in jeopardy, you know, despite the fact they've been called by God. So, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's tough as far as the role of the church and in society, I see no, I, I see no positive way forward. Unfortunately, I don't want to be pessimistic or, you know, a, a Daisy, uh, you know, down or whatever but i honestly see no positive way forward and so i fear for what the future of my with my so i have three grandchildren the youngest is uh seven so 20 years from now when he's 27 and his sister is 30 what what does it look like? Going to look like you know yeah. they'll probably have kids by then and what are they going to be having yeah to and even even now my children sometimes talk about like they don't know that it's responsible to bring children into this world and they're they're 14 and 10. i'm like you're not bringing kids in the world anytime soon but like also like why are, how is in the world are you having this conversation i feel like there are lots of people who who maybe could make that choice that aren't having this they're not talking about it or they're not thinking about what's the responsible way forward and i and uh you know of course i i would love more children in the world. I, I mean, I, you know, I'm not gonna, I hope my kids have kids eventually, not now, not anytime soon, but like eventually I would love to be a grandparent. But I, I do think, you know, if we can't see anything but the, 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 if, if what we're seeing is the discourse and whatever, and not a clear path to, to get through it, it becomes hard to then what sort of futures are we envisioning? Because I, I think if we can't see it, it gets harder to to get there. Um, if if we're not, which doesn't mean we'll be there when the vision comes into reality, right? We might not be there when that vision comes into reality. But I, I still, I guess, feel this strong need to um, help help my children see a future that isn't, as abysmal as the one I might be seeing, right? Um, and that and that that's hard because how do you do that and not be lying in some essence or like being optimistic just for optimism's sake? Um, I think that becomes a a hard um, a hard balancing line. Um, but then I then I wonder like, does it where does it begin? Does it start from all of us shutting down all our subscription services and agreeing to be uncomfortable? Is that like a modern day, uh, you know, one year boycott of the Montgomery bus system, you know, so that you cripple the economy and then they have to pay attention to you? Like, I, I don't know what it, it looks like. Um, and there are times I get asked every single day, I open my apps for like Amazon Music or Spotify, if I want to pay for the 
service and, and no longer hear commercials. And I'm like, no, I'll listen to commercials. I can't pay for one more thing. I can't pay for one more thing. Not on a regular, everyday um, basis. Like, I'm like, I make my own coffee. I don't, I'm not paying for that. Um, you know, I, and so I don't, I don't know the way in which it, it starts, but some of it has to be our, we have to be willing. I don't think it's going to change if all of us aren't willing to be a little uncomfortable. And that includes us from the pulpit having conversations that make other people uncomfortable. Cause it's not like I get comfortable having uncomfortable conversations. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Yeah. I had a, a friend who's now retired a Presbyterian pastor. He says, you know, if he preached on, uh, racism on Sunday or anything regarding economic justice, uh, you know, uh, he guaranteed to get a call on Monday. Yeah. Uh, I remember I preached, uh, I filled in for him one month and uh, in one of my sermons, I don't remember exactly what it was I preached about, but that following week I had a visit from uh, one of my seminary professors uh, who was a member of that church who um, was sent, you know, some folks were complaining and so they sent him to have mm-hmm. a conversation with me, you know, and uh, although although there was there were others who appreciated the message, uh, it, it sort of disturbed some other people. So they decided to send somebody to have a conversation with me. So um, so yeah, I don't I don't I don't run away from that type of controversy. I I appreciate I love it. So because obviously I must be disturbing. <laughs> so. Uh, I mean, I, I mean, the thing is, is that sometimes what I'm saying might be disturbing, but it also has disturbed me, which is why I'm even bringing it up, right? Like, if it didn't disturb me, I guess I wouldn't have I brought it up. I, I, I think um, there are times where, you know, like, I, I am white. Uh, my husband is black and from Africa. Our children are biracial. Uh, though they both I prefer to be identified as black Americans. Um, so that that's how I'll identify them. Um, and a lot of that is because that's what the that's what the culture tells them, right? The culture tells them they're black Americans um, oftentimes. and then um, not oftentimes, like definitely. But some sometimes when you talk about these things and I talk about these things, I think is it's like, I'm not talking about them because it's only relevant to me. There's a part that I have begun talking about this stuff more because I I see it differently play out in my home, right? My conversations in my home are very different than some of the conversations growing up. I mean, I grew up in an all-white household. No one came home and talked. Well, like, we talked about race in my house, but not um, nobody in my household was racially discriminated against. They, it would all be in relation to someone else. It's not the same thing as having your child come home and say, you know, somebody asked me if they could say the N-word today, which my brother gave a great response to was tell your kids that to tell those people they can say it as often as they hear them say it, which is never. So like, so like that's, that's how often they also can say it, that they can feel invited to say it as often as my son say the word. But but it's changed the like what's at stake right because now the the i i mean i was doing work on racism prior to both being married and having my my family but the the work has definitely got more personal <laughs> um you know uh but but it's always been important it's just more personal now but it but it's always been important important and um and but yeah I, I I guess I had not really thought about it doesn't matter your environment sometimes people are like I don't want to talk about this is not a topic I want to talk about when I come to church on Sunday period even though yeah. it's in the text <laughs> yeah yeah I mean because people don't want to be I actually had somebody in one of my congregations who uh, said to me uh, after service, you know, they want to start seeing my sermons beforehand. I looked at them as if they had an eye in the middle of their forehead. 
uh, <laughs> and just walked away. Like, you got to be out of your cotton picking mind. It's so, not happening. Uh, not happening here. But mm -hmm. uh, yeah, it's, it's, uh, what's, what's the, the, the slogan? You know, um, um, we, we, uh, um, comfort the uncomfortable um, comfort the afflicted and afflict the uncomfortable yeah there you go yeah, yeah that was a needle point in my house growing up it's still in my house so I, my mom had that as a needle point in our hallway growing up right <laughs> yeah so and that's how that's how i approach ministry and and, and you know and i as you said you know we're often uncomfortable you know yeah. the word convicts us as much as it convicts anybody else and so because we're all sinners right it's not like i have some i have a calling but i don't have like some sort of special protective bubble that that has made me not be affected by the things that right um that god puts out in this world i mean i i hope i get affected by it i mean otherwise what's the point right if i'm not affected by the stuff that I encounter on a daily basis, be it, I mean, I hope at the end of the day, I have more positive interactions than negative ones. But sure. if I'm not affected, then what I'm a zombie. It's just not, not really the way I wish to proceed through this world. Yeah. So I resort to jazz and go on jazz cruises to, to sort of find my uh, centering place. And, yeah. Uh, I think I think tethers like that grounding ourselves is is really important in you know whatever whatever ways that we do it that uh, that gives us the courage or the respite we need to continue to be uncomfortable. Um, so this brings us to the end of the hour and my final question, which um, isn't often appreciated, but I, I ask it anyway because. Cause that's how I, that's how I roll. But, uh, you no, know, no, I, <laughs> but where well, you, you can see mine, mine, my care bear here. Uh, but you know, they were, they, the emblem of the eighties and even, you know, what made me actually, what made me start thinking about them again, wasn't because I suddenly came across my old care bear in my childhood. Cause I didn't have a care bear in my childhood. I didn't have an actual care bear growing up. Uh, was Dave Chappelle talked about the Care Bears and that these were cartoons where they just exploded love out into the universe. And it made me think about them again and then continue to think about them um, and how I, I sort of, I see them very much as like, it, as an emblem for how uh, we could, you know, those gifts that were given by the Holy Spirit to shine out that love into the world. And so, John, if you were a Care Bear, <laughs> what color Care Bear would you be? And what core emblem uh, would be on your belly that you would project out into uh, God's world? Oh. Um, so... Since I, although my kids kind of watched the Care Bears, I didn't really follow them that much. But um, color, uh, I would say purple, because not because yours is, but yeah, purple. I was like, because you're you're mimicking mine. Yeah, no. The colors, <laughs> my uh, so just a quick side note. Um, uh, at this church, um, I was told that their colors are blue and white. I was like, oh, that's nice. And so for the anniversary. You know, they were decorating things in blue and white, didn't think anything of it. And uh, so one day um, somebody said, do you know why the colors of the church are blue and white? I'm like, no, this is because one of the pastors, that was the color of his fraternity. <laughs> so I'm like, oh, so, this, oh, well, it ain't my favorite colors, you know, <laughs> so I like purple. Yeah. It's not a royalty. So anyway, uh, so now the church color is purple and white. Um <laughs> Uh, so, <laughs> so it would be a purple Care Bear. Um, yeah. That's my favorite color, and it's also a color of, of royalty, which I would align with uh, the kingship of Christ. Right. Um, but as far as the emblem, um, I mean, this is kind of uh, um, 
I guess it would be, you know, I'm young enough to remember the the 60s, you know, and the peace symbol that was going around everywhere, you know. Right. So, you know, I guess it would be the peace symbol because, you know, I I hope that we could live and operate and play, you know, in a peaceful and worship in a peaceful atmosphere. So, yeah. so I think that would probably be my emblem. Nice. Very, very nice. Well, it has been a pleasure uh, chatting with you as always. And, uh, and uh, I, I look forward to many other conversations with you in the future, but thanks for taking the time and sharing some, dropping some knowledge on us. I appreciate it. Oh, thanks for having me. Let's catch up again. All right. Thank you. All right. We'll see you, Leah.